Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is June 19th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Here We Go Overdose Test for Fentanyl. Oh my God, I don't even sound like the band Rush on that one. You'll have to listen to the original to really understand that title. But our guest skeptic is Dr. Lauren Westifer. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. She is the co-founder of the excellent foam resource called Foamcast and a pulmonary embolism and implementation science researcher. Welcome back to the SGEM, Lauren. So excited to be here, Ken. You're always excited, and you're the person that taught me to say, y'all. I'm, I'm, I'm like really working and trying to do that just to be so inclusive and say, y'all. And I, I got to say, I'm really liking it. Right? It's perfect. So easy rather than saying guys, girls, they, him, her. It's just all inclusive, y'all. I love it. Must be a Southern thing. All right. Anyways. <laughs> We we got it. We got to give a case. Okay, so uh, start us off with a case there, Lauren. A 27 year old right hand dominant patient comes into the emergency department with a 2.5 centimeter left forearm abscess. Patient has no fever, chills, no signs of compartment syndrome, neurovascularly intact. You perform an incision and drainage of the abscess, and they have significant improvement in their pain. The patient reports injection use of opioids, and their last use was a few hours ago. They currently have no signs of withdrawal. Um, they're maybe potentially interested in starting on methadone, but not right now. Well, we've discussed the issue of substance use disorder a few times on the SGEM, and this has included looking at alcohol misuse disorder and also opioid misuse disorder. And we'll put a link in the show notes for those past episodes. Rises in opioid overdose deaths have been attributed, at least in part, uh, to increases in fentanyl contaminating the illicit opioids in the United States. And EDs are an important touchpoint for individuals who have opioid use disorder. And given the number of encounters for overdose and complications associated with drug use, um, it's just an important touchpoint uh, for these patients. I like how you're using the word touchpoint to let them know that it's safe and you are not going to overdose by touching fentanyl, despite what mass media says. Although some patients may be ready for medications such as buprenorphine or methadone, which can be initiated in the emergency department, some patients may not be ready for either medication. In these cases, harm reduction practices, strategies that mitigate complications from drug use, are critical. And there are many different types of harm reduction practices out there, and some specifically for opioid use disorder. Fentanyl test strips have been suggested as one harm reduction strategy to reduce opioid overdose deaths, theoretically by detecting fentanyl in the supply, and then maybe people are avoidant of that drug. The American College of Emergency Physicians endorses greater harm reduction education for emergency physicians. And so fentanyl test strips can be used as part of that by people who um, use drugs prior to use to detect the presence of fentanyl in whatever drug they're using, maybe not just limited to opioids. And individuals can use that information to decide if or how much of the drug to use. So Lauren, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's SGEM podcast? What are the perspe perspectives of clinicians and other staff distributing fentanyl test strips to people who use drugs in an emergency department setting? And what's the reference we're going to use to try to answer the question you just posed? 
This is Reed et al. Palette Testing Fentanyl Test Strip Distribution in an Emergency Department Setting, Experiences, Lessons Learned, and Suggestions from Staff. This is it Academic Emergency Medicine, June 2023? All right, so we don't have the typical PICO format. So what was the study design for this article? Yeah, this was a qualitative study that assessed staff's perceptions of this sort of pilot study of distribution of fentanyl test strips. So staff who met the inclusion criteria, we'll talk about that in just a second, were invited to participate uh, in this qualitative study. And what was the population that we were looking at? English-speaking emergency department clinicians, so they could be a physician, a nurse, an advanced practice provider, a technician, social worker, sort of recovery specialist, um, who are distributing fentanyl test strips through this pilot program. And so when were the interventions done? Uh, the interviews were conducted at two points in time, so three weeks uh, and then three months after the distribution of the fentanyl test strips began. And was there a comparison group in this study design? No, no, not in this qualitative study. So you may not know this yet, but it is an SGEM hot <sighs> off the press episode, which means I have the pleasure to introduce the lead author, Dr. Megan Reed. She is a PhD with a master's in public health. Megan is part of the research faculty in the Department of Emergency Medicine and works at the College of Population Health, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Welcome to the SGEM, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's great to see y'all as one Southerner to at least one other. Oh, you got the y'all in there. I love it. Well, mm -hmm. um, I'm from Texas. Oh, you're from Texas. I hear that's a pretty big state. Um, uh, we've been doing reviews of quantitative research, mainly on the SGEM. We've only done a few qualitative ones. So we're trying to capture more qualitative studies. What got you interested in this type of study design, qualitative studies? A couple of reasons. One is that I'm terrible with statistics, but more than that, I really like the answers of how and why people do what they do, right? Um, so quantitative research is really great. It's really great at measuring things. It's really great at, you know, the who, what, when, where, but qualitative research can really complement quantitative research and vice versa. Yeah, I really like that. I like understanding the why. Like, why do people behave in a certain way? It's such an important thing to, to understand and figure out. Yeah, it's so important to provide context for, um, for example, if I am making an intervention for people who smoke so that they can decrease their smoking, if I don't talk to the people who smoke about what works for them, why they smoke, what their triggers are, when their triggers are, how they cope when they have a trigger, then the intervention's not going to work as well as it could. If I do that qualitative research, I can tweak the intervention. It's going to set us up for success. Hey, Lauren, you know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like she's saying it all depends, <laughs> right? It takes place in a context. So we have the literature, which informs our care, guides our care, the statistics, the numbers. But people aren't statistics or number. Well, I guess they're an N of one. But, you know, it's really important to put that into a clinical context and understand the why people are behaving, how they make choices, why they make choices. So yeah, I think I'm really going to enjoy this episode. So Megan, um, we asked the lead authors if they can give the author's conclusion. So could you give the actual conclusions from the abstract before we move on to the rest of the program? Sure. 
Implementing fentanyl test strip distribution may improve patient rapport while providing patients with tools to avoid a fentanyl overdose. Participants generally reported positive experiences distributing fentanyl test strips within the emergency department, but the barriers they identified limited opportunities to make distribution more integrated into their workflow. EDs considering this intervention should train staff on FTS, fentanyl test strips, how to identify and train patients, and explore mechanisms to routinize distribution in the ED environment. All right, so now you get to sit back, Megan, while we go through the quality checklists for qualitative studies, and then we'll give some of the key results. But then we're going to bring you back to talk nerdy. So you got to get set up to talk nerdy because we've got five nerdy questions to ask you about. So Lauren, let's go through the quality checklist here. All right. The first question is, was there a clear statement of the aims of the research? Yes. Is the qualitative methodology appropriate? Absolutely. Was the research design appropriate to address the aims of the research? Yes, it was. Was the recruitment strategy appropriate to the aims of the research? Yes. Was the data collected in a way that addressed the research issue? It was. And has the relationship between the researchers and the participants been adequately considered? Uh, it's hard to say just based on what's written in the manuscript. It wasn't really detailed out there. Have the ethical issues been taken into consideration? Yes. Do you think the data was analyzed sufficiently rigorous? Uh, unsure. I'm sure we'll learn very soon. Is there a clear statement of findings? Yes. And this is a very subjective thing. The tenth and final question, how valuable is the research? It's it's very valuable. I think, you know, it, we're looking at an important question. We're looking at, um, a, you know, study that was appropriately designed to answer that question that has actionable findings. All right, let's get to the results. There were 21 emergency department staff who participated in this qualitative review. They had seven residents, four attendings, six nurses, two recovery specialists, one social worker, and one technician. The mean age was 35 years, 57% were male, and three quarters were not familiar with fentanyl test strips. Lauren, what was the key result? All participants endorsed the utility of fentanyl test strip distribution in the ED setting. Yeah, so that was the key result, but there were five other themes that were brought out that emerged from the interviews. What were those five themes, Lauren? The strategies to approach patients about fentanyl test strips, how patients reacted to the distribution um, or offering of fentanyl test strips, the dynamics between the patients and the clinician um, or individual who was offering up the fentanyl test strips, staff support and stigma, and then challenges of fentanyl test strip distribution in the ED. All right, Megan, this is where we bring you back. This is where we get to Talk nerdy. I love talking nerdy. Okay, so here we go. Lauren, you've got the first question. Sure. Reflexivity. Difficult word to say, but a key component of rigor in qualitative studies. And reflexivity involves a qualitative researcher examining their own judgments, practices, beliefs, um, as they're collecting the data um, and analyzing it to identify what personal biases do we have that may incidentally uh, affect their research or interpretation. So in, in y'all's analysis, how, in what way or ways was reflexivity addressed? 
Yeah, I mean, I consider myself to be a harm reduction researcher. Uh, so first and foremost, that's kind of the label that I apply to myself. And as part of that, I believe in the agency of people who use drugs. I believe in the dignity of people who use drugs. And that's a moral position, but it's also an evidence-based harm reduction position, right? And I know that there is an evidence base to the use of fentanyl test strips. People use them. They modify their behavior accordingly in ways that reduce their risk for overdose. Um, so it has a strong evidence base to it. So you could see all of these things as a bias coming in, right? And I recognize that. I am... I come in with a strong desire to prove that this works and with the belief that it's the right thing to do. And that, um, and in my previous study before doing this, I was actually doing research with people um, who use drugs about their fentanyl test strip practices. And a lot of people said, you know, where I'd really like to get fentanyl test strips is in the emergency department because I go there a lot. And I happen to, you know, my department happens to be one of the emergency medicine. So that's how we were able to start the study. So I had this strong belief in the importance of trying to do it. I had less of, I think, a bias in terms of whether or not it would work, in terms of workflow, in terms of um, staff interest in doing it, and whether it was really feasible. Um, so I had fewer issues there. I mean, one of the things that it's really important to do is to know your biases going forward. I had very little interaction with the research participants for that reason. I wanted to avoid influencing any of the data collection as the PI. Um, I also worked on a multidisciplinary team. So with an emergency department doctor and with myself as a qualitative researcher and then different other people on the research team. So all of those things, having like a broad team really helps to keep your biases in check. Excellent. Well, that's a nice jump off point for nerdy point number two, because it sounds like reflexivity is really about reflecting back on your own personal biases. But the nerdy point number two is about social desirability bias. Now, just to back up a bit, we've talked about biases in various forms on the SGEM multiple times, and I'm going to define bias as something that systematically moves us away from the determining the best point estimate of an observed effect size. In qualitative research, a major bias is the omnipresent social desirability bias. And this bias is when participants will often tell the researchers, tell the interviewers what they think you want them to hear. So what degree do you think that this may have been present in your study and what efforts did you take to mitigate or avoid social desirability bias? You know, I would say that social desirability bias is an issue in quantitative research as well. If you are asking me in a survey about, you know, my income and whether or not some of my income is under the table, I might have the social desirability bias to not tell you about that. But if you're interviewing me over the course of an hour and building rapport, and then you ask me about my income... I might be more likely to tell you, you know, oh, I boost goods on the side, right? Which is a common income for some of the people that I interview. Um, I think if I asked that question on a survey, I would probably get a different answer than I would 45 minutes into a qualitative interview where I've really worked to build rapport. So, you know, it's the pacing of the questions. It's the um, order of the questions. You know, you ask those sensitive questions later on so that you get a more honest answer. But that said, I think there is social desirability bias just even in the sampling um, of this study. So the way we recruited is we sent out emails to the entire staff and said, this is a study. 
to do an intervention with people who use drugs. And most of them didn't know what fentanyl test strips were, but still people volunteered. So these were people who had, you know, an internal motivation to take on extra work to help out people use drugs, right? So you have a biased sample to start with. And that just kind of, it is what it is um, with qualitative research. And with the research that I do, I do research with, you know, hard to recruit populations for the most part. And so I'm never going to get like necessarily a representative sample of the populations that I study because there's no way to randomly sample from people who use drugs. We usually do convenient sampling or you can do respondent driven sampling, which is a way of kind of trying to introduce a little bit more diffusion within your sample. Or when I do qualitative research with the population, I mostly do convenient sampling as well. Anyways, for this study, we're talking about, you know, staff within one hospital system. So we sent out the email and then the people who volunteered, volunteered. Um, so there is potentially a bias. And it's just something that you have to acknowledge within the limitations of the paper and the limitations of the work. Yeah, there, there are some biases probably in all study designs, and it's just nice to be able to recognize them, have them transparently acknowledged as a potential limitation so we can interpret the uh, study. But also, you know, what did you do to mitigate against it? And I like this idea of, you know, if you're spending 45 minutes with the person, you're giving them that safe space and developing some rapport. And I really picked up on that, that they may be more likely to be more honest and less social desirability bias, which I didn't appreciate with regards to just answering a survey question. So I found, I found that very helpful. Thank you, Megan. One other note that we did for this study is uh, we had one research team member do all of the training and the kind of face-to-face -face interaction with staff on, you know, here's how fentanyl test strips work, here's how to train patients to use them. And she was not involved in any of the data collection, right? Because they knew her and they probably wouldn't want to disappoint her and say that didn't work for me, it didn't work for patients. So that was one, you know, clear thing that I thought we could do that would put up a little bit of a wall. This is why we have the authors on. This is what makes the, it's gold. I tell you gold, Jerry, that's my Seinfeld, by the way. But that, you know, like being able to speak to the, the author of the study can give so much more depth and nuance to it. So this is awesome. What do you got for number three, Lauren? Well, I just want to say also, especially with regard to qualitative studies where the word counts for manuscript really just is so tight. Um, so it's hard to put all this stuff in there. Um, qualitative analytic technique. So qualitative studies have often been sort of not in the major emergency medicine journals and they're starting to, you know, be published more. Um, and so many people may be less familiar with the different analytic techniques and different types of analysis you can do. So a lot of qualitative studies that are published use grounded theory, where you're really coming up with a theory or thematic analysis or start with a theoretical framework if it's an implementation science focused thing. Qualitative content analysis that y'all used is maybe less encountered in the emergency department relevant literature in major journals. Um, so it'd be helpful to know how did you choose your approach and what are sort of the salient features of that? I think the term grounded theory is one that's very overused. It's not one that's actually really done very often. So if I'm doing grounded theory research, it's for this totally new unexplored thing that nothing is known about and I have no idea how to even start because nobody's ever tried to analyze it before. That's not the type of research that I do. That's very, 
you know, has a very anthropological approach. Um, I do often use theory to inform my research. The most common theoretical framework I use is called risk environment theory that looks at how the different levels of like the social and the physical and the economic environment interact in micro and macro levels to influence behavior and how the individual then influences those environments. So for example, if you take somebody who uses drugs and they inject pharmaceutical grade heroin in a supervised consumption space under clinical supervision, they are you know, not getting exposed to an adulterant like fentanyl or xylazine. So they're not getting these necrotic wounds from the xylazine. They're not having HIV or hepatitis C transmitted because they're not using a use syringe. They're injecting with sterile water instead of you know, water drawn up from the tank of a toilet bowl or from a puddle of water. So they're not, you know, injecting bacteria, right? It's just very few of those harms that we associate with drug use have to do with that substance. It's all the other environment in which somebody's using. That's what I usually use. For this study and for every study, I use what is referred to as content analysis, where you're really looking at the themes that are arising from the questions you asked. So those are you know, if I'm asking a physician or another staff member a question about how did this influence your rapport with your patient, I'm going to have a code that's called rapport, for example. Or if there's an unanticipated finding, like we didn't build in probes necessarily in our interview guide about workflow, but workflow came up quite a bit. So we had a code called workflow. So those are both examples of, you know, content or thematic analysis. Um, so it was a pretty straightforward approach because um, we just wanted to look at, you know, directly reported um, experiences and the implications that had for the feasibility of this intervention. So the fourth question is about qualitative rigor. Rigor in qualitative studies has been widely described based on the following criteria. Credibility, dependability, transferability and confirmability instead of validity and generalizability. What did you do in this study to ensure the qualitative rigor on these specific points? Yeah, again, I think having a team-based approach is really key. So I would never do a qualitative study all alone. It would be very much my own lens that I'm reflecting back from what participants are saying if I'm doing on my own. In a team-based approach, and please stop me here if I'm going into too much detail. I'm just going to kind of explain the mechanics of, of qualitative analysis. We are nerds. Bring it. Okay. With qualitative research, you know, you do the interview, you send it off, it gets transcribed, and then we upload it into qualitative software. So the software I use is called Invivo. They're all pretty much the same, very clunky. But, you know, in a team, my teams usually have three people coding, three or four, and we each take let's say transcript one, and we all read it on our own. And I print it out and I write notes in the margin and I open code. So again, if I see an instance of rapport talked about, I write rapport in the margins. If I see workflow talked about, I write workflow in the margins. If I see, you know, approach talked about how they approach patients, I write approach, right? So after we all read the transcript, we have a meeting where we talk about it. It's very process heavy qualitative researches. We all have a meeting about it and we start making a code book together. And a code is really just anytime we see people talking about a certain topic, we applied the code to that topic. So that way at the end, after you 
transcribe like all 42 interviews, we can run a query for the code rapport. And then anytime across all 42 interviews, people talked about rapport with patients, we're able to see that and really pull out the themes that arise, right? So that's what we do at the first pass. We start making this code book. And each code has a definition that we tinker with because you want the codes to be mutually exclusive from one another. And you want to get, you know, usually about 15 to 20 codes per project. Once we have a pretty good one, we all take transcript two and we all code that on our own. We have another meeting, lots of meetings. We have another meeting in which we um, run a test called intercoder reliability or the extent to which, you know, the three of us all applied the same code to the same chunk of text. And it gives us a score. It's a Kappa score. And the Kappa score has to be 0.7 or above um, in order to be considered good intercoder reliability. So we go through and we like reconcile things code by code, we tweak the code book, it's very iterative. And at that point, then we start coding on our own. So I would do two on my own, person B would do two on their own, person C would do two on their own. And then the third one, we would all code separately, come back together, run that Kappa score again. So again, it's an iterative process. We keep tweaking as we go. And we do that until we're through all 42 of the interviews. So basically by doing this process, we are making sure that we have fidelity to the code book, that we don't have like creep from the definitions of the codes and that we're all in agreement. And again, this multidisciplinary team is really, really helpful and having people with qualitative expertise um, is also helpful. Wow, that sounds really labor intensive. Is there anything going on in the space of using AI and, you know, I'm seeing all this chat GPT stuff. Is there any way to analyze the transcripts and sort of get artificial intelligence to be able to pick up some of that load and then have you guys filter it later? I don't know. I mean, I know that um, I know people have been using machine learning to analyze you know, hundreds of thousands of tweets, right? Which is a qualitative approach. So I would imagine so. I mean, qualitative research kind of recognizes at its core that it's very skeptical of this assertion that there is an objective truth. And we recognize that everything is pretty subjective. We see things through our own subjective lens. And I guess the AI is subjective in aggregate because it's aggregating everybody's subjective lens. Um, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to talk myself out of a job. <laughs> you know, I, I also as a qualitative researcher, I, you know, one of the big things is really, you know, is thinking about your own biases. And if you have a black box, you don't know what biases exist in there, right? Like you, you have to have all of those rigor things, and and really like you know, it's why you listen to the interview and read the transcript and really try to immerse yourself. In, in that data, which is what a participant is saying or in an interview, you know, whatever. Um, so it, it's hard to know, you know, when you insert everything in a black box, what biases are there, which would be my concern. Mm -hmm. But I guess we can move on to the next, the next question that I have for you. So um, this fifth point is sort of balancing perspectives or, the, or you know, the different perspectives that participants may um, talk about. So in qualitative studies, sometimes participants will report on the experiences or perspective of others, like what somebody else may be feeling or what they said or how they perceive something. And since in this study, it was only interviewing 
providers or clinicians, not the patients who were approached or maybe not approached who, you know, also use drugs, um, who were potentially eligible for receiving fentanyl test strips. So it's impossible to understand the patient perspective here. So how do you balance the tension when you're reporting a study like this? I really love this question because we actually did do that. Um, So now I get to say we did the thing. Um, We surveyed patients. uh, We surveyed 135 patients who received fentanyl test strips in our ED. And hopefully that'll be out by the end of the year. We just got to revise and resubmit on that paper last week. But we asked them, you know, what are your drug practices? Which drugs are you worried about having fentanyl? If any, what do you know about fentanyl? What do you know about fentanyl test strips? Have you used them? Which drugs would you use fentanyl test strips on? And what would you do as a result if it turned out positive? So most people were like poly substance users. People who were surveyed were offered fentanyl test strip training and and the fentanyl test strips. And 100% of the people that we offered the strips to and the training to took them. So the patient population that was getting surveyed weren't the ones who had been trained by the staff. So different people, but also just still people who are offered fentanyl test strips by research staff within the emergency department. We did ask them which staff members they would be comfortable receiving test strips from, and they were pretty much comfortable receiving them from anybody. We also tried to collect contact information for people to follow up with them a month later to do a qualitative interview. But uh, I think it speaks to the extreme vulnerability of this patient population. We were only able to reach a couple people by phone the vast majority, their phone numbers were disconnected, right? So most of the people who were getting surveyed were unhoused, um, had pretty unstable access to phones. And so we weren't able to follow up with them, which is a huge issue with um, doing longitudinal research with this patient population or in doing member checking, which is where I would take my qualitative results and say, here's what I found. Do you agree um, based off of the interviews that I did with you? And it's really hard to do member checking when people don't have cell phones and I can't reach them. Well, this is even hotter than hot off the press because you're talking about stuff that hasn't even been published yet. It's not on the press yet to be off the press. Can you give us like the one key takeaway message, like the big message from that uh, survey of those, those individuals, those patients that were offered fentanyl test strips? I would say that they all took fentanyl test strips and they were happy to receive them from any type of staff member. Well, we'll have to have you back when that's published, won't we? Um, Is there anything else you'd like to say about your study on fentanyl test strips or this idea of harm reduction strategy or qualitative research? The floor is yours. I would say that for me, what really struck me the most in doing the study is how the staff, especially physicians, talked about having this tool that they could offer people who came into the ED. You know, the sentiment that I sensed from a lot of people was, these are patients for whom we often feel like we can't really do much. And I have this physical tool that I can give to somebody that they can leave the ED with, that they can stay safer using. It also was like a signal for patients that I am a safe person to talk to right? By me offering you this tool, I'm signaling to you that I am non-judgmental, that I'm safe to talk to. My hope is that, and what I would like to learn from patients is, does that make you feel more amenable to coming back for services in the future? Does that make you more amenable to 
um, accepting other referrals like treatment of substance use disorder, for example, from staff. The other thing that I noticed in the follow-up interviews kind of three months later, and I want to acknowledge this was like deep into COVID times. So it was just a, a period of like mass, you know, overflow of the ED is that a lot of people said that they were so busy in the emergency department that they often forgot to even they often forgot that fentanyl test strips were even an option because the, their cognitive burden was too great to remember. So, you know, a lot of people just said, put the fentanyl test strips where I'll see them, right? It's as simple as that. And then the last thing I'll say is that we also received funding through this research study to make two videos. One video is a fentanyl test strip demonstration video showing how to use fentanyl test strips on a variety of drugs. And the other was um, a video of staff who had participated in this intervention talking about their experiences. And my hope is that other emergency departments could see the video and think, oh, maybe we could do this here. Do you have that video and we can put a link in the show notes so people can see it? That would be great. Excellent. Excellent. I really like the idea of having the ability to do something you know, and I'm always talking about, you know, over-testing, over-treating, and don't just do something, stand there. This gets into the concept of, you know, choosing wisely and always minimizing our care. I'm more in the camp of the right care, and sometimes we need to provide more care, and we need to do more active treatment. And I, I like the idea that here's a vulnerable population that's been marginalized and that we haven't been able to necessarily do something for. And by offering them fentanyl test strips, you can say, I value you. I care about you. You have inherent value as a person being alive. And this intervention could help keep you alive. And that's a common goal. So I really like that. All right, Lauren, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEMS. We generally agree with the author's conclusions. All right, how about giving us a bottom line? Although the clinical impact of this fentanyl test strip distribution in the ED is uncertain, staff-led distribution in the ED appears feasible. And you did start this off with a case, so can you resolve the case at the start of the podcast? You prescribe antibiotics for the mild cellulitis around the abscess, and you also provide take-home naloxone and discuss harm reduction techniques, including rotating injection sites, where to access new needles, use of alcohol pads, sterile water, and the potential for fentanyl test strips. And so how do you think you can take uh, Dr. Reed's qualitative study and apply it clinically? Although the clinical utility of fentanyl test strips in an undifferentiated population of people who use drugs in the ED is unknown, there are several barriers to implementing this intervention in the ED, but it's doable and feasible. Also, we do this in my emergency department, and we couple them with granola bars, condoms, sterile water, um, and needles for people who use needles. And so what would you actually tell the patient uh, in the emergency department? There are several things that you can do to reduce, reduce your risk of getting very sick, getting a bad infection, um, or dying until you are ready to stop using drugs. One of the things that you may be interested in are test strips, which can detect fentanyl. If the drugs test positive for fentanyl, then you can understand you might be at an increased risk of overdose uh, and prepare accordingly. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was John Carter. 
he knew Atomidate was published as a novel hypnotic agent in 1965. That's even before I was born. So what's the Keener Contest question this week, Lauren? What is the name of the severe reaction seen with high doses of fentanyl that includes a sudden onset of rigidity of the abdominal muscles and the diaphragm, which can cause respiratory failure? Well, if you know the name of the severe reaction, then send an email to the SGEM at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. But now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this pilot study of distributing fentanyl test strips to opioid use disorder patients in the emergency department? Tweet your comments using hashtag, don't forget the hashtag, hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Megan and her team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in AEM. Well, thanks, Lauren, for doing another episode with me. Yes, you got to know your audience and who you're working with. All right. And thank you, Megan. Really enjoyed having you on and understanding more about qualitative studies and this idea of using fentanyl test strips. Thank you so much. It was really fun. So you you did identify earlier as someone from Texas. And so I'm going to ask you to read the SGEM tagline, but I want you to channel your best Texan accent, just over-the-top Texan. You can even throw in some y'alls in there. Okay, y'all, remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Giddy up. Talk to everyone next time.